questions. Number one, who was the best babysitter in the Bible? David, he rocked Goliath to sleep. (laughs) Second, why was Goliath surprised? Nothing had entered his mind like that before. And lastly, do you think you'd tell Goliath jokes like that? I don't think so. He fell for something like that before. There you go. Take those and tell them to your grandkids this week. They'll have fun with those. As we look at the Bible, we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today. You'll be able to see them on the screen, so you won't have to flip around and try to search in the Bible. I hope that will help you a little bit as we go through this. This is week number one, the challenger. Uh, The story of David and Goliath is one of the best well-known stories in the Bible. It's a story of God's ability to deliver his people even through an unlikely hero. In the first part of the story, we learn about the challenger to the Israelite army, Goliath. Through the narrative, we learn about the enemy before us and ultimately that our God is bigger. Will you pray with me? Lord, please help us to recognize when things like fear and doubt and condemnation are creeping into our minds, give us the courage to continue standing in faith and trusting you no matter what the circumstances are around us. We ask it in Jesus' blessed name, amen. Good morning. I'm glad that you decided to be with us this morning. I'm glad because you have chosen to be with us on an awesome Sunday as we start a new uh, series and that you see five smooth stones. I remember the first time I heard this story was in Springdale Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Lewis Avenue, if you know where that is. Um, uh, We were in the junior boys department and Mr. Binge was our junior boys Sunday school teacher. You know, you divided girls and boys up, at least back then they did. They didn't have classroom we were all together and so you know we were there probably maybe eight to ten of us around Mr. Binge. Uh, Mr. Binge was a full-blood Cherokee Indian and uh, you know he had a way of his cadence was a little bit different uh, because of his upbringing and so I I remember him speaking and and I know if you remember they uh, at least back then we had these quarterly packets and they had this big packet and inside the packet was all the material that the Sunday school teacher would need for that for that uh, quarter uh, and, of course, they were telling stories from the Old Testament, and this was David and Goliath. So he pulls out the picture, uh, and the picture's probably about this big from the folder. Uh, and I remember it as clear as day. Here's this giant in the background, and this young youth, a lad, probably about our age, it looked like, at least in the picture, uh, with a sling fighting Goliath. Now, I didn't know what incredulous meant. But that's how I felt back then. How in the world, I was skeptical, how in the world could that young man beat that giant? It just didn't make any sense. I didn't understand the whole story, but I discovered it in that Sunday school class that day. Hopefully we'll discover something as we look through this, this story of an unlikely hero, David, defeating a mighty giant named Goliath. But there's really so much more in that story from that simple statement but the statement that strikes me is that God is bigger than my giants I want you to think about that throughout this sermon God is bigger than my giants and that is true I want to help you unpack this story to look at it and talk about it it's three major things we'll look at today as we think about that and then we'll do the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of this first of all 
If you have a Bible, would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Over the next four weeks, we're going to essentially cover this entire chapter. However, we're going to begin in verse 1 this week, and you can follow along with me, and you can read it in the screen behind me if you will. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled to Sokoth and Judah. They pitched the camp at Ephes Damim, where Sokoth and Ezekah, Saul and the Israelites, assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet, and on his head he wore a coat of scale armor, a bronze wing, 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I can imagine why. Uh, Just spend a moment looking at Goliath. The Bible describes him as something like nine feet tall. Uh, I have never met an NBA basketball player. I have seen them. And some of them get near seven feet tall. Imagine two more feet on an NBA basketball star, and you'll have an idea of how big he was. And the pictures, and we can talk about how much a shekel weighs and everything, but you get the, the picture that he's got this, this beam, basically, that's his spear, and how heavy that would be. It's almost like a man's head that you would think on the end of that. It's pretty easy to see why the Israelite army was dismayed and terrified Uh, when you look at somebody like that and think I have to fight him there was no way that anybody could fight him they were confronted with a clear and dominant enemy there was no doubt about it I don't know if you, you you get the picture they're on one side they're on the other there's a valley in between them there's no good way to come down and fight that both sides have this you know, I'm on the high end, and that's the best place you want to be when you fight is the top of the hill. But I'd have to come down to the valley to fight this guy, and I'd lose all of my ability to protect myself as I do that. It would be a slaughter when you would think of Goliath against somebody else. Today, I want to see what we can learn from Goliath. What we can, about our present enemy, whatever that may be, but the Bible says this, if you look at 1 Peter 5, 8, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, that's who the evil one is for us today. He's attempting to, to break you down. He's attempting to tear you apart. He's threatening you today. As you look at this word and see the story of David and Goliath, I want you to imagine your enemy and how you have to fight him today. I think we have to be aware of what 
challenges and what challenger is around us and what it sounds like. If, if we're going to be successful against that, we need to know who our enemy is, right? If we're going to fight my enemy, I need to know who my enemy is. I need to know what my enemy is trying to do to me if I'm ever going to be successful. And interesting enough, I think our present-day enemy sounds a lot like the Israelites' army's enemy. He is overwhelming, and it seems daunting when I think of the challenge. So the first thing we see from Goliath is, number one, the enemy will question. The enemy will question. Did you notice what Goliath asked the Israelite army in in verse 8? Look what he says. Why are you all coming out to fight? You see, there are a lot of attributes we could probably name that are behind these words in Goliath. However, I think there's one important relationship in what Goliath was doing when he challenged the army and it was the word doubt he was attempting to put doubt within their mind that's an age-old tactic of the enemy isn't it to make us doubt to make us think and question whether or not we will succeed whether it's possible, if we can live up to the standards of Jesus as he's laid out in the New Testament, can we really do that? There's a time in my life where I worked for nonprofits. I worked for a number of them over the years, and, and since I pretty much was 19 years old, I've been in church-related missions or ministry. So since 19, I have worked in church. Some of the places I've worked have been great. Others have not. Others have been led by people who we who worked together would say were not really as Christian as we would have liked for them to be. They just didn't exemplify Jesus as Savior. And many people questioned. I was in one where a leader did not reflect the the principles of Christ. And all those within that organization began to wonder why he was still allowed to be who he was, the leader. And because of it, there came doubt within the organization. Questions were prayed to God. God, why do you continue to let this person lead this organization when it's so obvious that he shouldn't be there? And we began to wrestle, many of us, with our our ministry. Should we continue in this vein? Should we even be here? Should we do this? Is it worthwhile to do this with a leader like that in place? I think the reality is that naturally, we have a tendency to doubt from time to time. You and I question things. We wonder about things. Things go on in our mind. We stay awake at night wondering and doubting whether things will turn out all right. And the devil, the evil one, as it said in Peter, is the king of doubts. He tries to worm his way into our mind and make us question everything about God. He gets into our head, and it's hard to get him out. Go all the way back to Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible uh, talks about what happened. And then in Genesis 3, 1, we read these words. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal in the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? Can you hear that? I emphasized it, but surely you can read into it what he was doing. Did God really say that? What is he doing? 
He's planting doubt in her mind. He's questioning the veracity of God's word, and he's calling to question whether Adam and Eve can trust God. Did God really say that? Here's here's the, the couple, and the business that distracted them is whether they could be like God or not if they ate that fruit. I think he's in the business of distracting folks today, of getting them offline, uh, of of dissuading them in the truth of the word of God. We question and people question the God's word and whether it is really his word. You'll see people teach in colleges that it's just like any other book, but is it really like any other book or is it God's word? And do we question that or do we accept that? Therefore, I think we need to be aware of the questions that are confounding us today that come from the evil one. In the case of Goliath, at least, you can see what's in the Israelites' heads, what the problem is. He's right. We're wasting our time. There is no way I can beat him. He's so much taller than I am. Well, let's imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm five foot seven on a good day. If I wear my boots, you know, that's how tall I am. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's almost twice as big as I am. Can I fight him? Is that possible? We can't defeat him. We can't fight against him. You know what? I think the Israelites would be correct in their assumptions, don't you? They couldn't beat him by themselves. There was no way they could fight him by themselves. They are right. They cannot defeat Goliath on their own. However... They were never intended to, were they? As we saw in one of the slides before we started, God goes before us. Amen? It's not our own power and our own ability that's at issue. I am not the warrior I need to be without Jesus. I have no strength without him. I cannot defeat the enemy without him. That's something I should not miss. I need to recognize that that may happen. I think, though, that sometimes when I don't remember God is on my side, I can become discouraged and I can doubt because I look around and I see the challenger before me. I see the challenges he brings. And I slip into that wrong mindset, that wrong perspective in battle. The Bible makes it clear. We were never meant to fight the enemy on our own. There is a way out. I, I read a story a number of years ago. It, it, supposedly, if you take a bumblebee and drop it into a glass, a tumbler like that, drop it down into it, the bee can't get out. All it can see is straight ahead. And so it begins to pink on the sides of the glass and it will work itself till it destroys itself hitting over and over the side of the glass all it has to do is look up and get out but it never does it continues to try to go ahead and it beats itself to death on the glass trying to escape i think we need in our struggles to do the same thing to realize that to get out We have to look up. We have to look to him. 
We have to look to Jesus and find the help that he offers to us. I think it's true when we look at Joshua 1.9, the Bible says, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I think those words were not just for Joshua. I think they're for every believer to remember. Amen. That God goes with us. The Bible says he lives in us now, right? Christ in you. He goes with me wherever I go. I need to remember that he's there. I think right after Goliath asked this question to the Israelite armies, he made a profound statement. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. I think when we look at the enemy, he tries to make us doubt. But I think also the enemy will condemn The enemy will condemn. The word but is extremely important in the Bible. Or however, that's another word that's substituted for it. Every time we see it, we can assume that there are two different and often opposing statements right next to each other. For instance, let's take Acts 1.8. When the Bible says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The idea was before that, they didn't think they had it. But you will have power. You didn't have power, but now you will have power. I think in a similar sense, here in verse 8, Goliath is seeking to elevate himself above the Israelite army. I, I think it's, it's at least clear on paper that Goliath has the advantage, right? I mean, look at him. He's taller, he's bigger than everybody else. He has better weapons than anybody else. He's better defended with his armor than anybody else. Anything they had on that side was not anywhere close to what Goliath had. His shield was so big, someone uh, was carrying it for him. And all he had to do was reach over and grab it. He was there. He had a spear and he had a javelin. He was ready to fight. And he was good at it, apparently. They had beat a number of people. He was the champion. And then look at the little Israelite army people. Again, there's no way. On paper, Goliath wins. And I think it's an important statement when he says, you are only the servants of Saul. A few minutes ago, we talked about doubt. We talked about how they could, that can worm into our minds and make us be deceiving ourselves that we cannot live up to what we need to do. But here I want us to think about not doubt, but trust. Trust. When we remove everything else, who do we trust? Who do we serve? Who do we look to? You, you see, I, I think it's clear how prominent the division is in our world. In fact, I don't think you can argue that it's a prominent tactic of the devil that he will try to associate you with less than you are. You are not enough. You can't do it. Some of us associate ourselves with our church. Nothing wrong with that. If our, but if our identity is only to our church, is that enough? Someone associate ourselves with others, with families, with businesses. When our association, our affiliation ought to be tied to Christ, to Jesus. I ought to be so associated with him that people can call me Christian. I am a little Christ. I am like him. 
And that's what we should be like. Some may incline themselves to a political leader and try to follow that person. But it's God himself that gives us hope. My church doesn't give me hope. Christ gives me hope. I associate with people who are just like me, who struggle with what I struggle with. This is a hospital, right? It's a place where we come and we get better so that we can go out in the world. But it's Jesus that makes us better. You don't make me better. We work together to accomplish the goals of Christ. A political leader cannot help me. He cannot pass enough laws to make the world better. It will not happen. Satan will defeat that. But in Jesus, I can overcome everything. It's in him that I affiliate myself. And I think the difference between the Israelite army and David, as we'll see over the next few weeks, is that idea of perspective on the situation. You'll see that next week. It's the perspective that we have. It's how we look at things in our own lives. What kind of perspective do we have when we hear those questions? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Can you really do this or not? We hear the voice of condemnation, I think, from Goliath. And we automatically hear it in our own minds, true. If we claim to be Jesus's, if we're really his, if we really believe in a risen Savior, if we really believe in an all-powerful God, if we really remember those things and really, truly believe them, can we ever really be defeated if he is who he said he is? And do I really believe that? Do I hold to that? I think sometimes the condemnation that comes from Satan makes us question whether or not we believe those things or not. Can we trust God? He starts with doubt, and then he tries to question even the trust that we have in God. And I think that's the dialogue between Goliath and the Israelite army when it comes to that temporary close in verse 11 when we read the words, When Saul and the Israelite armies heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. The final thing, the third thing we see today, we have to realize about the evil one and his tactic over us is this. The enemy will strike fear. The enemy will strike fear. We've already talked about the devil and how he wants to distract people like you and me from God. We, we hear whatever it, it takes, he will do. He will do whatever it takes to destroy your life. And one of the most prominent tactics that he uses to do that, beyond questions and doubts and condemning words, is to strike fear in your life. Is there any reason why over and over again in the New Testament, when angels come before us and bring God's message, they say, don't what? Be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't fear. Is there any reason when God speaks to the people he's going to make leaders, he says to them over and over again, do not be afraid or dismayed. Fear not, Jesus says in the New Testament, over and over again to his disciples when they wanted to be afraid. Because it's the tactic of the enemy to do that. I read an article that said in spite of what people say, 90% of the chronic patients who see today's physicians have one common symptom their trouble did not start with a cough or a chest pain it didn't start with acid in their stomach you know what it started with fear they were afraid something was wrong they were afraid something was going to happen to them 
one of the American uh, psychoanalysts said in medicine, it is an age-old problem, it is a clinical symptom that people start their illnesses with fear. Sometimes fear is more than simply an anxiety, you know, feeling anxious about something. It can become debilitating, can it? People become so afraid they don't leave their homes. You've seen those television shows about the thousand-pound people. You know, they, they can't get out of their house without a forklift. And it started from a simple set of fear. They were afraid to go out in public. I wonder sometimes if that fear is keeping us from stepping out in faith that maybe Satan has got us so afraid of what the world will do to us that we'll never open our mouth and talk about Jesus. We're afraid that we may go to jail. We're afraid that our family won't say anything to us. We're afraid we'll be ostracized by the people around us. And we never open our mouth and talk about Jesus because we're afraid. Fear. In Matthew 14, verses 24 through 28, we read these words, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it shortly before dawn jesus went out to them walking on the lake and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake they were terrified there it is again fear it's a ghost they said and they cried out in fear the bible says but jesus immediately said to them take courage it is i don't be afraid Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. This story of Peter taking action to step out on the water is a step of faith, isn't it? It, it, If it's you, tell me, and I will step out on faith and I will come to you. Don't be afraid. That's what Jesus said. And Peter said, then help me, call me. Peter seemed to have confidence, but he needed that voice to listen to and to trust. And that's the question that we're confronted with today. Which voice in our head are we listening to? The one that tells us to doubt, to question God, to his trustworthiness? The, the, the voice of fear in our head or the voice of God? who motivates us and drives us to follow him. I think the word of God shows us the consistency of God and what he sounds like. When we read God's word, we can hear God in our head, in our heart. We know it's him and we know it's true. We know we can rely on his power and his strength and not on our own. We know it's in him we trust. The enemy will consistently be defeated like it was that day in that valley when we rely on God's strength and not until. No one there could have defeated Goliath without the power of God, without trust in God, without believing in God. Consider this week how you're relying on your own strength. Are you trusting yourself or are you thinking uh, that I can do this on my own or are you asking for help from God? If you haven't, you should. Try to recognize and, and, and 
interpret the voices in your head this week? Uh, Is it a voice of doubt? Is it a voice of condemnation? Is it a voice of fear that's coming into your heart? Remember, it's the voice of God I should be listening for. That still, small, quiet voice in the midst of the storm. This week, I think, and finally, when you spend time this week, read the Bible. Uh, Consider Ephesians 1, chapter 1. And go through Ephesians 1 and highlight and write down all of the ways that God blesses you through Christ. And I think if you do that, it will help you to trust God this week more than maybe you did last week. It will fix in your mind the things that make you stronger in Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. He is our friend. He is our Savior. And we were never meant to fight this battle alone. We were meant to fight it with his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we ask you to help us to not listen to the voice of the evil one in our minds. He will sow doubt. He will sow condemnation. He will sow fear in our hearts. We will not be defeated by no matter how large the enemy looms over us. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. In Jesus, we have strength to do what we could never do on our own. So help us to consider five smooth stones and this week help us to see the challenge before us and that the challenger has no power in the face of God. We pray in his holy name. Amen.